is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, February 5th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Last year's midterms brought a wave of new members to Congress, including some new conservatives. Today, we bring you an exclusive interview with Congressman Denver Riggleman, who comes to Congress with both military and business expertise. He'll share his thoughts on what the new Congress needs. Plus, smartphones can be distracting and even addicting. But does that mean government should ban kids from using them? Well, one major conservative figure is saying yes. We'll discuss. But first, we'll cover a few of the top headlines. Today is President Trump's State of the Union speech, and as usual, lawmakers are lining up guests to make a point about policies. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, has us Anna Maria Archilla, the co-executive director at the Center for Popular Democracy, and more famously, the activist who confronted then-Senator Jeff Flake, Republican of Arizona, in an elevator over his support for Brett Kavanaugh. Senator Kristen Gillibrand announced she would bring Navy Lieutenant Commander Blake Draymond as her guest. Lieutenant Commander Draymond is a transgender man. And Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman, Democrat of New Jersey, invited an illegal immigrant, Victorina Morales, who has been in the U.S. for 19 years, five of which she worked at a Trump golf club in New Jersey, per the Daily Beast. Well, Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia is doubling down and rejecting calls to resign after a yearbook photo surfaced of him appearing to be dressed in blackface, standing next to someone in a KKK outfit. That image from his 1984 medical school yearbook went viral last Friday and sent the governor into damage control mode. Initially, he acknowledged being the young man in the photo, saying, quote, Earlier today, a website published a photograph of me from my 1984 medical school yearbook in a costume that is clearly racist and offensive. I am deeply sorry for the decision I made to appear as I did in this photo and for the hurt that decision has caused then and now, end quote. But then the next day, on Saturday, the governor changed his story and denied that he was the young man in the yearbook. I was appalled that they appeared on my page, but I believe then and now that I am not either of the people in that photo. Instead, he did admit to using blackface, but in a different context, not in the yearbook picture. I did participate in a dance contest in San Antonio in which I darkened my face as part of a Michael Jackson costume. I look back now and regret that I did not understand the harmful legacy of an action like that. Northam was elected last year and has three years remaining in his term. He's facing mounting calls from Democrats, including former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, to resign. Well, if Northam steps down, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax will become governor. On Monday, the website Big League Politics suggested Fairfax was potentially guilty of sexual misconduct. Well, Fairfax hit back with his staff issuing a statement saying he has never assaulted anyone, ever, in any way, shape, or form. The statement also said the Washington Post had looked into an allegation against Fairfax and had not gone forward with a story because of insufficient evidence and red flags. The Post, however, stated, quote, Fairfax and the woman, who they did not name, told different versions of what happened in the hotel room with no one else present. The Washington Post could not find anyone who could corroborate either version. The Post did not find 
significant red flags and inconsistencies within the allegations, as the Fairfax statement incorrectly said. The Senate voted overwhelmingly last week to express disapproval of President Trump's plans to withdraw troops from Syria and Afghanistan. The amendment passed 68 to 23 and will likely be attached to a Middle East policy bill this week, which was expected to pass easily. The amendment was written by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a strong ally to the president on most issues. But on this issue, he parted ways with the president. In a Senate floor speech Thursday, he said, quote, I believe the threats remain. ISIS and al-Qaeda have yet to be defeated, and American national security interests require, require continued commitment to our mission there. Well, if you live in the Garden State, look for your children to become experts on LGBT history. New Jersey has a new law on the books, making it the second state to mandate that schools teach LGBT history. Len Dio, president of the New Jersey Family Policy Council, told the North Jersey Record, We believe it further erodes the right of parents to discuss this sensitive issue with their children. If, in fact, schools are going to be promoting and making the claim that this particular person was an LGBTQ member. And a Hawaii legislator wants to do away with cigarettes for everyone unless they're over 100 years old. Democratic State Representative Richard Cregan proposed a bill that would incrementally raise the minimum age to buy cigarettes. Under the bill, in 2020, the age would go up to 30. In 2021, it would go up to 40. And by the year 2024, it would be totally banned, again, unless you're over 100 years old. But don't worry, if you're into e-cigarettes and you live in Hawaii, he's not coming after your cigarettes, just the old-fashioned kind. And notably, uh, Cregan is a former smoker, so presumably that gives him some kind of moral credibility to talk to other smokers. I'm just trying to imagine if someone in my 30s, I don't smoke, but if I did smoke, having to ask someone older than me to buy cigarettes at this age, that would be so freaking insane. Go find a centenarian, is that what they're called? Yeah, or like just, I guess, for the the few years. Can you buy some cigarettes? I just can't imagine like going up to someone and being like, hey, are you over 40? I really could use your help to buy this. And also, this could lead to so many awkward situations. Like, what if you thought someone was over 40 or over 100? He's nowhere near that age. Except this time it wouldn't be teenagers asking (laughs) 21-year-olds to get their beer. It'd be like 50-year-olds asking (laughs) (laughs) 102-year-olds. There'd be senior citizens being like, imagine how popular certain nursing home patients would become. Okay. Well, anyway, next up, we are going to feature Rachel's interview with Representative Denver Riggleman. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. Each Tuesday in The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. We're joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Representative Denver Rugelman, who was elected to Congress in November to represent the 5th District of Virginia. Congressman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. So you've been in Congress for about three weeks now, give or take a little bit. Could you share with our listeners your path to Congress coming from the private sector and not really a political background? Well, people know I don't have a huge political background. I think I ran for federal office all of since June 2nd is uh, my whole time running for federal office. 
we had a four days to prepare for a committee convention because the other congressman got out after the nomination process. But I think people really enjoyed me trying to fight for small businesses and deregulation. Uh, they know that I had a background in not only military intelligence, but military operations. And they know that, you know, I created a, not only a service company in the Department of Defense that was pretty successful, sold it in 2012, but I started a manufacturing business making liquor, you know, at Silverback Distillery. And so I have this, uh, I've had this unique experience in life, not only to start companies, to be in military intelligence, to start from nothing. I was a Mustang. I was enlisted in the Air Force and commissioned, you know, I started with nothing. I think sort of a definition of the American dream. And the fact is, I, my life experience, I believe, translates pretty well to the political arena, and people thought so, and they asked me to do this, and I did it, and uh, surprisingly, I won. You mentioned your military background. Uh, you were an enlisted aeronautics technician and a commissioned officer. How has your experience in the military helped shape the way you think about national security and those issues? Well, you have some good intelligence there. That was <laughs> that was great. You know, yeah. I mean, for me, um, you know, I started when I started enlisted. It was really looking at radars, avionics. Um, I worked on jets, and they thought I was smart enough to go to college. Went to the University of Virginia, but really, it's about it's about defending the Constitution and serving something bigger than yourself, not people, uh, but an idea. And I believe I'm bringing that here. Uh, I think I think I serve the Constitution. Uh, I think everybody serves the Constitution more than they serve specific individuals. I do believe in chain of command, but now as a representative of the 5th District, I have a responsibility to my constituents that I live up to what the Constitution wants me to do, not what other people want me to do. So I do bring, I believe, a perspective that's a little bit different and that what what the needs of the 5th District are what I'm fighting for. And if that's within the left-right boundaries of the Constitution, I'm willing to do that and to fight for it all the way. But if something that's specifically, you know, maybe personality-driven or something outside of those bounds, I'm not going to support it. And guess what? I don't have to because I haven't been in politics. So I get, I get that freedom, you know, to make decisions that I believe are best for the 5th District. You mentioned your, uh, your business, Silverback Distillery, that you and your wife started. What was it like to build a small business, and how uh, has that experience shaped uh, where you are now in Congress in this journey? When people build a small business, they realize the absolute pain and misery that you go through as an entrepreneur. And people are listening to this will automatically smile and say, I understand the pain. And what you don't understand is that state, local, and federal regulations usually contradict, uh, and you start to go to war against all these three-letter three agencies and four-letter agencies uh, and county and, and, you know, state and local and then federal. They're all conflicting, and you have one hand not knowing what the other hand is doing, and usually you have these bureaucrats making decisions that have never done anything like this. And they're not, sometimes not out of spite, just out of ignorance. And once I started fighting for small business and deregulation, and I learned that starting a service company in the Department of Defense is completely different from a manufacturing company. I thought it would translate. By the way, anybody going to do that? It does not translate. So uh, do your due diligence. Um, so, but I think what I learned, really what I did learn was that if you don't fight what you think is right, uh, if you're not willing to stand up, you will get rolled over. And I did have a lobbyist at one time tell me, sort of with a smirk. He goes, if you're not at the dinner table, you're on the menu. And that's really where I decided to get involved again and to serve. It's in my DNA because of the military. I don't want to be in politics, but I think people who hate politics need to get involved with politics. 
Thank you for sharing that. Um, so looking at the different regulations you mentioned, you know, the state, local, national, how these all of these are kind of conflicting with each other. Is there a particular reg- regulation or something that you encountered that you specifically want to try to tackle here for small business owners? I know there's probably a lot, but is there one particular one? Yeah, one. I, I'll, I'll do a simple one because there's some there's some deeply regulated issues. I'm on the Financial Services Committee now for banking and, and uh, things of that nature. But how about a simple one? Simple one. Department of Labor? They charge $75 to a farmer for every H-2A worker, legal migrant worker, who drives on their own private property. So think about what I just said there in a sentence. Um, they, can, they can actually transport anybody they can outside of their property. They can drive outside their property. But once they're on the property, they have to have a little card that says they're allowed to drive on private property. And it's $75 per person. It's just there's so much needless regulation based on I don't know. And I think you're having common sense business people starting to run that uh, might have a better idea of what needs to be done and what doesn't. Looking ahead into this new Congress, this new year, are there any particular priorities legislatively or otherwise that you want to um, tackle like in this first year, your first few years here? Well, there's a couple bills we're looking at. One of them is actually defining what guidance is and what regulations are. And uh, that's because sometimes it seems like regulators want to know, uh, want you to do something just based on some kind of opinion. So we want to make sure that regulations get out of people's life. So there's some bills that we're looking at that way. Uh, bills that we're looking at like that uh, that I'm going to sign on to. Uh, it really, I ran on health care. You know, I ran on immigration, not only on securing the border, but I ran on streamlining immigration because of the labor issues we have. And I and I ran on making sure we kept the tax cuts in place. And uh, I'm still that way. I haven't changed. But the priorities here in the minority, and I've never been in the majority before, so I only know minority, shut down, all that. Um, I think my priority is here is to make sure that for the 5th District, I reach across the aisle for those things that we can do right now, but just to make sure there's not too much government overreach uh, and to make sure that uh, we don't have people who sometimes value socialism over freedom, you know, getting into the chili of my constituents. That's my job to protect them and to stop that stuff. You mentioned the government shutdown. How has that affected you um, and just the way you've been having to start out this first year? You mentioned the importance of uh, securing the border and legal immigration, and we're kind of in the middle of that right now. Um, How has this kind of solidified or defined um, these first few weeks? You know, I, when I got into this, I didn't think it'd be in a shutdown, right? A historic shutdown as a brand new member, somebody who hasn't, you know, been involved in politics. What I've seen is the startling lack of common sense. You know, everybody talks bipartisanship or they talk that they want to make a deal. You know, it seems like the more some people give, the more other people's t- more other people will take. Uh, what I've seen right now is that, uh, you know, I'm on the Republican side, right? But my belief is that we have to secure the border, even with our drug use that we have in our own district. And I think it's sort of odd that every security expert knows that physical barriers work and we need to do this type of reform on the border. But we have people playing politics with it. And, I, and it's stunning that somebody from San Francisco is actually dictating know how this will go uh, where people just aren't listening and I think I think we're talking past each other I do believe in the next seven to ten days I think we're going to have a breakthrough and I know that's a long time for people but I think there's some moderate Democrats that are just fed up with what's going on on that side of the aisle uh, going back to your military service is there a particular um, story or tale from your service that you look back on and enjoy sharing with people who I know a lot of our audience really appreciate our veterans and people who have served so is there looking back on those days is there something that you um, like to share or remember from that time 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I've t- <laughs> that's a now that's a loaded question. There's a lot of military stories. Everybody likes to do that, but uh, I think the thing that taught me is, you know, how a team works together. There was one time where I did have, a, a, you know, I had a I had a, a semi-automatic weapon stuck into my chest, right, with a dry fire, and uh, I thought it was a dry fire. They actually hadn't loaded the weapon. They thought it was funny, um, but. Um, you're talking about four of us uh, in Romania were looking for somebody that was missing and uh, had a pretty pretty dangerous encounter uh, with some gendarm. Um, but what I found out about that encounter, and it's a long story, is that you need to learn the language of the people you're with, number one, because you can be mistranslated pretty quickly. And I can't say what they mistranslated what you said into on this podcast. But also that if you have a great team, we actually had another um, intelligence agency sort of save our lives. And uh, I was able to do a little bit of my part. Uh, it's amazing in the United States of America what we do overseas for others. And it's amazing what veterans do for us. But it's also quite stunning, you know, what teamwork can accomplish if you have everybody working together. And I think that's what I learned in the military is that there is a brotherhood and sisterhood that can accomplish things much greater than themselves. And it happened that night in Romania back in 1999. As a small business owner and, uh, you know, here in Congress and um, just you mentioned earlier your uh, goal to keep tax the tax cuts in place. We've seen some people say uh, here in Congress that they want to raise taxes, especially Democrats have said that now that they're in the majority in the House. Um, how important is that to you, and do you see that um, as a threat if they get serious about that? Yeah, raising taxes is the last bastion of those who can't you know, um, actually control their spending. Um, our deficit and, or our debt, uh, it's not because of tax cuts, it's because of spending. I mean, how dare us argue on you know, top-end tax rates between 36% and 39% and say somehow that's the difference. That is absolute bunk. Um, anybody who's run a company, anybody who knows uh, anything about how to balance a checkbook or actually how to sign the front of checks knows that it's spending, not tax cuts. It's not their money to begin with, and I just find it appalling that we have this, that some people, and especially on the new left, have this automatic assumption that it's their money when it's the taxpayer's money. So my whole thing in life is this. I will always err on the side of liberty. And I always think that even you and even me, you know, two people sitting here talking, we can spend our money and do things better ourselves than the government can. So that's really where I start from. And if people like it, great. If they don't, I don't give a rat's. Congressman Ruggleman, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate you having to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to. Parents need help, and there's no reason that the Congress, which made smartphones possible in the first place, shouldn't be part of the solution. So here's an idea. Ban smartphone use for children. Pass a federal law tomorrow. Why wouldn't we do that? Well, that was Fox News' Tucker Carlson with a, let's say, very unconservative idea about some federal government intervention. But on his show recently, in that same segment, Carlson did give a longer explanation about how he believes smartphones are hurting American kids. But they've also made our kids much less happy. Thanks to smartphones, kids have nonstop access to Facebook, Instagram, and other social networks. And the science is very clear on that. The more time you spend liking social media posts and updating your Facebook status, the less healthy you are. A 2015 University of Missouri study found that Facebook use made people more depressed and increased their envy of others. 
A 2016 study found that quitting Facebook boosted psychological health. Last fall, a study in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology found that social media use is directly tied to feelings of loneliness and depression, which can lead to life-threatening psychiatric disorders. It's not surprising then that rates of mental illness and suicide among teens began to surge right around 2012. That's just as smartphones and social media became universal. Okay, well, joining us today is Thalia Rampersad, one of our producers for the Daily Signal podcast. Thalia, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Kate. Okay, so first of all, full disclosure, none of us have kids, so I'm sure that those of you who are parents out there hate that we have opinions on these topics, and I might take this all back when I have kids, but let's go around. Thalia, would you let your teenagers or younger have a smartphone? Teenagers, I think, is more of a conversation. I definitely think that under, especially the age of 12 or lower, I don't think kids should have a smartphone. I don't even think they should have a cell phone. They're in such a developmental stage in life that they need to be focusing on on that. They don't need to be focusing on what their best friend is doing or where they were this weekend. If they want to know, they can talk to them when they get to school. I think it's so crucial for them to focus on growing up and, and dealing with the, the hardships and trials of puberty and what comes with that without having to worry about throwing in technology. So to address uh, just initially Tucker Carlson's point about government, obviously I do not think the government needs to get involved in this. Like just because something is would produce a good outcome doesn't mean the government has should do it. I I know I think I'm a believer in you know pushing things down to the parental level if possible, and parents seem to be well placed to regulate uh, more efficiently how their kid what their kids are like capable of and what their kids can handle. Um, so. Yeah, all about the parents doing it. I think, actually, Thalia, I think I, I agree that... Um, Daniel, you're already on the record. Before this podcast started, Daniel said he would let his 10-year-old use a smartphone for half an hour a day. <laughs> I, so he's recanted. Now so you I think have to defend that no, position. I think, it's a, I think it's a spectrum, okay? So, <laughs> like, I think if you're five, just my personal opinion... I don't think you have any business having a, a, a owning okay. personally owning a phone like All right, a cell phone. Good. You're against maybe, it for kindergarten. Maybe, <laughs> maybe if I had First three grade. or four kids, mm, they talk. could all use an iPad like to play games. <laughs> you know, maybe there's like a way to share. But I, but something about me, like five year olds, even ten year olds having their own personal iPhone doesn't make sense. But I think when they get into that 12, 13, 14, you know, they can handle it. The iPhone is not inherently evil, right? I mean, it's not. It's, it's, it can do lots of things, um, and there are parental controls on the iPhone for, for those reasons. So I think as long as you, lim- you, know, you limit it to a certain amount of time per day and only certain things you can do on, on the phone, I don't see why not. So I, I, I have changed my mind a lot on this in the past couple of years. I think I would be appalled that I wouldn't want kids to have it if, you, if I had said this two years ago. But my thought is, while you might be able to control certain things on parental controls, I'm not sure you can control how much time they spend. And it also strikes me that they can do most of the good stuff on an iPhone, on an iPad, or a laptop. And I would just get worried about how easy it is, frankly, myself included, to just waste time on it, especially at such a formative age when your brain is developing and when social relationships are so important. But one thing I was curious about both of you is you had an experience I didn't have. I did not have a smartphone in college, and both of you did. So how did your college social life, how did the smartphone this affect is how, that? This is why we're so less educated than you. <laughs> no. 
if we were de- we were deprived. I I would true, disagree with that. Learning. This is my opinion on it. I really truly believe that I almost stunted my educational growth with being exposed too early to technology because I had such uh, intrigue into technology and then once I got just a little glimpse of it I became almost addicted to it and I didn't know where to draw the line and the boundary and because all of this was just uncharted territory in terms of our generation it was almost like we were just inundated with it if you weren't online or if you weren't talking to your friends on Facebook or texting I didn't get texting on my cell phone until I think it was like 12th grade and I just felt I was so out of the loop like FOMO was there and it didn't even exist yet. That's you know? fear of missing out for those of you who are not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was millennial, that was millennial speak, yeah. But no, it it created almost this problem that I didn't recognize until I realized that this is what was causing it. So many studies have come out about what the damage of technology and what it can do, especially being exposed to it at such a young age when you, your mind is still developing as a child um, right. into an adult. Yeah, I don't know. I got my first iPhone when I was, uh, yeah, a freshman. It was the 3G iPhone, which looks super old tech nowadays. Like a brick. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's like wide and weird. It's like very small. Um, But I really liked it at the time, and I actually ended up dropping it in a lake uh, or falling into a lake with it, uh, and so it got ruined. So then I I got a 4G replacement. Um, That was my sophomore year. Um, But... I don't know why I got into that. I, I think, you know, it, there's ups and downs. Like, if you need to text somebody, like, it, you know, if you, I guess you can do that without a smartphone, though. Yeah, right? you can do that with a dumb phone. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I mean, I liked being able to check, you know, the sports during my freshman and sophomore years. My baseball team, the Rangers, were in the World Series, and I liked being able to check, you know, get updates, like, while I was doing something else. So that was nice. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because actually my college was uh, rather extreme on this issue, and we actually didn't really have internet access on campus except for, like, the library. <laughs> so Did I you act- submit your papers hmm. by hand? Uh, Print it out. Wow. Yeah, and it was – I uh, was not the biggest fan of that rule. Um, I have mixed feelings about it now, but – so anyway, I had it even more extreme than no smartphone. Like, I, I literally couldn't check the internet basically more than twice a day. Wow. But – in retrospect, I think that was kind of awesome. But I also I was talking to my brother recently whose work intersects with a college and he was saying that they are having such problems with teens mental health and freshmen being isolated that they're literally starting a new initiative next year, which is trying to figure out how to get uh, these college students out of their rooms more. And basically all these people who don't have friends in college yeah. to find friends like it's so urgent. He says, you know, they're. They don't have enough mental health counselors because so many kids need them and they just are not set up for that level of demand. And I mean, yeah, I think I don't know if it's fair to entirely blame on smartphones, but I think when you have kids going to college who he said from you know a socioeconomic background are not from families that you would say are troubled or difficult in a particular way and they are unable to make friends because they're just chilling out alone. Right. That's pretty extreme. And just touching back on your no internet policy in college, Mm -hmm. I personally don't see any sort of negative outcome of going to a library and not having internet access and actually using your brain to go into whatever is the Dewey Decimal System or whatever (laughs) it may be to find research. I I think that's so beneficial. And the fact now that kids don't even know what they would do, they would combust if they didn't have the internet and not know how to Google search something. I think that is such a 
downturn from what it could have been. People were existing way before the internet. And guess what? I would I would argue that they were much smarter than we are now. Oh, if I walk down the hall without my phone in my pocket, I feel helpless. Exactly. Going outside, you know, without my phone. Like, what, what, what if someone tries to rob me? What if I lose my wallet and I can't call the police? But, I, you know, people never thought that back in the day. No, it's interesting. I forgot my phone coming to work the other day, and it was a very weird uh, metro ride for me because I was just there with my thoughts. Yeah, you kind of feel naked. But isn't that interesting to sit yeah. there and actually contemplate something without someone constantly trying to pull your attention one way or another? Well, it was also interesting because I, <laughs> I'm old enough that I used to commute without a smartphone in my first year in D.C., and I would just bring books or the newspaper or something. So... But it was interesting to think, like, I really have to go an hour without knowing what happens on Twitter. Like, I might miss breaking news for an hour. And that was weird for me. And it made me a little bit jittery. And I don't know that I like that about myself. But anyway, so, yeah, if you're a parent and you have kids, we think you should ban smartphones. And since we don't have kids, we obviously know what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Except for Daniel, who's a squish. That's right. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, which, yes, you access through your phone to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.